The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. The word of God for the people of God. What does this babbler wish to say? Maybe that's what you're thinking a few minutes from now. I don't know. Hey, I know it is only the second week of August, but it's already been a big month for my family. My oldest son Parker got married last weekend. I brought along, there's the wedding selfie right there. 
Parker and Rebecca are actually here this morning. Can you guys wave? This is the awkward time where everybody turns and looks at you. So, um, so that's uh, we've sort of been uh, aiming at that day all summer as a family, just anticipating that. And so I do want to thank all the men who preached this summer in the Psalms series here at Quorum Day. That includes Aaron Maddox, Justin Curtis, Mike Kresnick, Travis Barrett, Kevin Eastep, Kevin Halston, Dusty White. You, are, you guys all did an amazing job. Yeah. And I want you to be thankful uh, to be in a church where seven or eight or nine different men can preach sermons that are amazing and sound and biblical and rich and that serve us well. I mean, it's really God's grace to us uh, to be in a church with that many great leaders and preachers. And I'm really grateful to those men for their leadership of us this summer. I also want you all to turn and look at all the people out in the atrium. Go ahead and see, see those folks out there. Hey, you guys. We see you. You're there. I want all those people to get in here. And here's what I want you to notice is that around you, there's an empty seat or two that actually we could get more people in here than we do. And so, you know, every week we make that announcement like, hey, could you move toward the side aisles? And I know you're sitting there thinking, really, do I have to? Is it going to make a difference? I want to convince you that, yes, it's going to make a difference. And moving into this fall, uh, man, we are going to need to maximize every seat in here. And so please do that as best you can. Get to know each other sit next to each other. We did not buy a chair for your purse or your Bible. We bought it for a human, okay? So <laughs> let's put all humans in chairs uh, in this room as we are able. I also want to mention uh, we still need some kids volunteers in order to have our rooms fully staffed heading into the fall. And so you've been seeing that come out in the weekly emails, but do please step up and volunteer and serve in those ways so that we can um, serve our kids well heading into the fall. Um, I want to begin this morning by just telling you why I'm here. I don't know why you're here. There might be lots of different reasons. Um, I am here because I want you to be or to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I like doing what I do. There's a lot of other things involved in leading a church, and none of those things are what animate me. The thing that gets me up in the morning is I want each of you to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thing I care about. I want you to love Christ and follow him. And so look, I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you are already a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not. But that's my longing and that's my heart. And that's what I hope for as we sort of gather every week and as we do all the things throughout the week that further the mission of the church. And part of loving and following Jesus is loving and valuing his church. Because when Christ calls you to himself, he calls you into his people. And so we're going to take just four weeks here as we begin the fall semester to strengthen our understanding of the church. Hence the title Church 101. Most Americans have a very weak ecclesiology, a weak understanding of what the church is and why it matters. And so I want to go back to the Bible to help us build a rich biblical understanding of what it means to belong to the church, the people of God. Because if you love Jesus Christ, what I want for you is that you would love his church, even that you would love this church as flawed as it is, and that you would be all in as part of the church, whether it's this church or some other church. So let me shoot straight. There are many of you who would consider Quarmdale your church. Like if someone asked you, where do you go to church? Or what church are you a part of? You'd say Quarmdale, and then they'd say, how do you spell that? 
and we'd have the conversation from there. Um, so you might consider this your church, but you're not meaningfully engaged beyond Sunday mornings. And I want to change that in this series. I unapologetically am trying to move the needle a little bit. And what I want to do in this series is either to win you or to lose you. Okay? I'm good either way. We need seats. So, you know, if we lose a few of you, it's fine. I'd rather win you, but we'll take it either way. Here's what I want. I want you to be all in with what God's doing at Quormdale and becoming a disciple of Jesus here, or I'd love for you to be all in somewhere else. If there's another church that you want to be part of, great. I just want you to be all in and committed and engaged meaningfully in the life of a local church. So that's my goal. And we'll make that, we'll make as much of an attempt to get you connected here as we can, and we'll celebrate if you connect somewhere else. What I don't want is for you just to be a Sunday morning attender, because you probably know as well as I do, man, you can't actually meaningfully grow as a disciple of Jesus in 75 minutes a week. Um, it takes a lot more engagement, life on life, um, than just being here on a Sunday morning. So here's the question I want to ask for the next four weeks. What is a biblical church? I mean, what does the Bible say about what the church is, what the church should be, what it means to be a part of God's people? And I'm going to answer that question four different ways over the next four weeks. Here's what I want to say to you this week. A biblical church is an evangelistic church. So I want to convince you of this morning that to start with, a biblical church is an evangelistic church. The word evangel is the Greek word for gospel or good news, the stuff we just professed a few minutes ago. So an evangelistic church is a church that believes and celebrates and proclaims the good news of Jesus. And so we're going to look this morning at one of the central passages in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul proclaims that good news. And as we look, we're going to see why we do evangelism, how we do evangelism, and what happens when we do evangelism. Okay, so that's the sermon outline this morning. Why do we do evangelism? How do we do it? And what happens when we do it? And so I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 in the heart of the New Testament. If you're using a Bible under your seat, you'll find it on page 871, Acts chapter 17. And we're going to engage this wonderful book of the Bible that sort of tells us the story of the early church. This is like uh, your family history, okay? This is like, how did the church come into being? How did we all get here? What happened in this early Jesus movement that took over the Roman Empire? How did all these churches begin to get started throughout the Roman world. So in Acts 17, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy are traveling throughout the Roman Empire telling people that Jesus has risen from the dead and that they should give their lives to him. And here in the middle of the chapter, we find Paul in the famous Greek city of Athens. And he gives a famous sermon at the Areopagus, this, this place of learning and philosophical discourse and dialogue. And I want to begin by looking at why. Why does Paul do this? Look at Acts 17, and let's pick up the story starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so Paul has gone on ahead. Some of his companions are a day or two behind, so he's waiting for them to get there. As he's waiting for them, it says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That's why Paul did evangelism. And that's why we do evangelism. Because our city 
is full of idols, as was Athens. See, every human being loves something. Every human being lives for something. Every human being is giving themselves to something. That's the essence of worship. And Paul's spirit is provoked by the misplaced worship in Athens. He looks around and realizes these people are giving themselves to things that just aren't lasting and true and real. Are you provoked by the misplaced worship in your city, in your neighborhood? I mean, people all around us are giving their lives to things, right? Many of them giving their lives to things that aren't going to ultimately satisfy and fulfill their deep longing for meaning and purpose. Worship that should be going to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to a thousand other fleeting and, substan- and insubstantial and meaningless things. And that ought to provoke you. If you love Christ, you ought to think, man, why are the people around me living for stuff that just doesn't matter? That's just not going to satisfy them. I mean, how many of you know a man who, when hunting season comes around, his worship peaks, right? Like all his disposable income is taken up with the truck and the gear and the hunting lease. I mean, these people live on your street, right? I know because my daughter works at Shields and they all shop there. They buy new guns, new hunting equipment. A lot of money gets spent on that kind of thing in our city, right? That's a kind of worship. Or how many of you have neighbors who are selling their souls to youth sports and their whole calendar and all their sort of relationships revolve around their kids' sports teams? I've told this story before, but I like coming back to it just because it still blows my mind. It's always mind-boggling to me. But when my younger son, Lewis was playing youth football years ago, I signed him up for this tackle football league. And it's like when kids are small enough that they could tackle and, you know, just... It's fun to watch, but it doesn't hurt very much, and so they want to get into it. And so he was eight or nine years old. I take him to the first practice, meet the coaches and whatnot, and they hand out the schedule for the football league. And I look at the schedule, and I don't know how I missed this when I signed him up for the league, but I realize, oh, all the games are on Sundays. You know? So I pull the coach aside. I'm like, look, coach, we're a Christian family. We want to honor the Lord's Day. Church is a priority for us. Rest is a priority for us. How come all the games or on Sunday. And he looked at me like I was the dumbest person on earth. And he said, well, because the Huskers play on Saturday. <laughs> like, what is that? That's misplaced worship, right? It tells you the thing we together orient our calendar around is not the worship of Jesus Christ. It's the worship of Husker football, right? Do you see the idols in your city? Do you see the idols in your own heart? Here's an easy way to determine what you worship. Look at your calendar and look at your bank statement. That will tell you what gets the best of your time and of your resources. If you're a Christian, it ought to be evident as you look at your calendar and your bank statement. You should see how Jesus is prioritized in both of those places. Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw the idols of Athens. And we ought to be provoked as we see the idols of Omaha, Nebraska, and of American culture. That's why we do evangelism. Why do we do it? Because Jesus should be getting more worship than he is. 
Because we want people to flourish and thrive, and they can't and won't unless they give their lives to the only thing that really is going to matter. Now, let's talk about how we do evangelism. Here's how I learned to do evangelism. I'll tell you a little story from my life. When I was uh, growing up back in the 80s, a while ago, y'all, I participated in this um, program at the church I grew up in called Evangelism Explosion. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's just a way of talking about the gospel to people. And here's how it worked. People would come to church on a Sunday. They'd fill out a visitor card. Uh, we would show up on a Thursday night and there'd be a stack of those visitor cards and we'd pick up the phone and we'd call the phone number on that visitor card and it would ring on this thing called a landline. People had those back in the 80s. Also, this was even before caller ID. I grew up a long time ago, y'all. So not only would people with the phone ring, but people would actually answer it and they would say something like, hello. And you would say, hey, I'm calling from church. You know, noticed you visited on Sunday. Just want to see uh, if we could drop by and pay you a visit and, and say thanks for coming. And surprisingly, people would be like, yeah, come on over. Because again, it was the 80s. And people actually came over and had face-to-face -face communication. So we'd show up at someone's door and sit down and talk with them and usually ask a couple questions. The two lead-in questions sort of went like this. Hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And the second question is, hey, if you did die and you stood before God and he asked, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And then based on those two questions, there was a little gospel presentation we would do to walk people through sort of what it means to trust in Jesus and have a relationship with him. So that's how I learned to do evangelism many years ago. Here's what I want to convince you of, if you don't know it already, that approach to evangelism does not work anymore. And it's not because we have cell phones and caller ID. And it's also not because the gospel has changed or Jesus is less compelling. The reason that approach doesn't work anymore is because it assumed certain things about the people you were talking to. It assumed that most people had a basic sense of God's existence, that most people had a basic familiarity with the Bible, and that they had a sense of guilt and their need for forgiveness. And so that approach to evangelism was just sort of connecting the dots. Hey, you know there's a God. You know you feel guilty because you've fallen short of God's standard. Did you know God has given away for your sin to be forgiven through Jesus? You're just connecting the dots that already existed in most people's minds. We now live in a world where there are no dots. By and large, the people who live and work around you don't have a positive view of Christianity they may not have a basic sense of the existence of God or a basic familiarity with the Bible. And they're generally not asking, how can I go to heaven when I die? So how do we do evangelism in a world where there are no dots for us to connect? Well, let's look at how Paul does it in first century Athens. It's instructive for us in our world as well. Notice, first of all, in verse 17, it tells us he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. In other words, there's a dialogue taking place here. He's engaging with them. He's listening to their questions. He's paying attention to what 
obstacles exist for them to the message he's preaching. He's having a reasoned dialogue, and in so doing, he gains a hearing. And they say, hey, we want to know more. What you're saying kind of intrigues us. Tell us more. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Little background here, Greek and Roman culture was highly polytheistic. There were gods for everything. There were so many gods that St. Augustine, when he wrote his famous Christian apologetic work, The City of God, made fun of his countrymen because they had so many gods they couldn't even remember them all. And because they were afraid that they might forget a god and therefore offend the god and bring a curse on themselves, they would make altars to like, if there's any other gods out there that we don't know, this shrine is for you. Okay? So that's what he's teeing off of. He's saying, hey, I walked around. I saw you guys have an altar to a God you're not even sure exists. So there's a starting point. Notice that he does not start with, you guys are all pagans and you're going to hell. Okay? He starts from common humanity. Hey, you're worshipers. You guys are human beings who are living for something. And I looked around and observed what you worship and what you worship is unknown, let me proclaim to you. So he starts from a place of common ground, common humanity, common religiosity, common worship, and then we get to the heart of the message. Look where he goes in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. In other words, he starts with creation, not with Christ. I want you to just notice that. The God who made the world and everything in it. Listen, you can't do a whole lot of good telling people about Jesus if they don't even believe there's a creator. Some of you need to stop trying to get people saved and start trying to get them lost. Once people are convinced that there's a God who made the world and everything in it, and that I have some moral accountability to that God, now I might be interested in what you have to say about Jesus. Until then, I'm not really tracking with you. There's an order to the gospel, and it starts with the God who made the world and everything in it. The Bible starts in Genesis with what? Creation. And a God who is a creator, who is separate from and transcendent over everything else he has created. So he starts with, this provocative scene, there's a God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice what he's saying. He's like, hey, God doesn't need you. You need him. Like the starting point is if there's a God who created the world and everything in it, obviously you're not doing him a favor by worshiping him. Actually, he's giving you breath. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. So notice he expresses two things at the same time, the radical sovereignty of God. Hey, God gives to all men life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind. He determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is utterly sovereign over everything that happens in your life and in the world. This God is great and glorious, and he is in charge. And 
He did all this so that you would seek him and find him because he's not far from each of us. So he emphasizes both the radical sovereignty of God and the radical presence of God, the radical knowability of God. And then notice what happens next. For, he says, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If you have footnotes in your Bible, you probably have a footnote behind these two phrases that tells you he is here quoting two well-known Greek poets. In other words, he's tapping into common grace truth that's already present in their world. He's doing kind of what Justin just did with that Taylor Swift song. It's like, hey, here's a lyric. Guess what? It's true. What if we just let that guide us? So he's tapping into their world and saying, you know what? Truth is not only found on the pages of Scripture. Truth is found all over the place because this is God's world and he made everything in it. And so there are pagan poets who say true things. There are songwriters who don't have any knowledge of Jesus who write very true lyrics. Let's allow that to be a jumping off point to talk about God. He's looking for the places where what they're already reading and listening to and paying attention to has resonance with biblical truth. So he quotes these two pagan writers, poets, philosophers, and then he says, verse 29, notice this. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone. So he even draws a conclusion from this song lyric. He's like, hey, since Eratus of Crete said we are God's offspring, and he's obviously correct, therefore, if that's true, isn't it, doesn't it make sense to you that God is not made of gold and silver and stone? He just reasons right from a poem to truth. And he's saying, look, in light of that, if we're God's offspring, then we bear his image. We don't make him in our image. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he ends with final judgment and the resurrection of Jesus. Hey, you're going to answer to God. He's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness. And the way you know it is he raised someone from the dead. So I want you to notice two things that the apostle Paul holds together here that for some reason our world likes to separate. There are some people who say, hey, you know what preaching the gospel is? Just talk about final judgment and Jesus all day. And if you just do that, you're preaching the gospel. There's other people who are like, man, let's just talk about movies and music and art and literature. And let's just live in that world. And he's just holding those two things together. Saying, yes, we can do both. We can talk about poems and music and art and all the common grace realities of culture. And it's also true that God's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world and he raised Jesus from the dead. The, those two things together are part of the message of the gospel. Notice also what Paul does not say, which I find interesting. He does not say, Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. Why does he not say that? Well, because that's not the news they need to hear. They're not lost enough yet. That is one aspect of the gospel and one way of summarizing the gospel, but it's not what these particular listeners need. What they need to know is that there's one God who made the world and everything in it. 
that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. And then in light of that, they need to repent and change their whole way of living. And that's the message Paul preaches. That's how he does evangelism. He is aware of the whole story of redemption, and he's saying, for these listeners, based on where they're coming from, with the worldview they're entering into the room with, what do they need to hear? There's one God who made the world and everything in it. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, you need to repent. God calls all people everywhere to repent. That's the message Paul preaches. So that's how he does evangelism, and there's a lot there for us to learn. There's a lot there for us to learn. So we've seen why we do evangelism, because we're provoked by the idols around us. We've seen how he does evangelism, some of the nuances of it. Let's look now at what happens when we do evangelism. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I want you to notice that that's the thing that gets them is like, hold on, someone rose from the dead. I'm not sure I'm going with you on that one. That's the thing that sort of is a separating point. They're kind of with, I mean, these are polytheistic people. The idea that there might be a God out there that they don't know about is actually a whole reason they have a shrine in the first place. They're not, they're not that surprised by that idea. But also, all of a sudden, if you're talking about someone rising from the dead, now we got some questions. So some mocked. That's the first response I want you to see. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I want you to catch, by the way, the reason that in this account these people would be named. Why does he want you to know that Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris became Christians on this day? Presumably because if you lived in the first century, you could go to Athens and you could find these two human beings and they would validate the story. You could ask them like, hey, I heard that that day when Paul preached that sermon in Marseille, that that's when you became a Christian. And they would say, yep, that's what happened. That's why they're named here. But I want you to notice these three responses. Some people mocked. Some people said, you know what? I'd like to hear more about this. Some joined him and believed. That's what happens when we do evangelism. Those three things. So here's what that means. If some people in your family or your friend group think you're kind of crazy and really don't want to talk about Jesus, normal response. If some people around you are like, man, I don't know, I might want to talk more. I'm not sure I believe this Jesus stuff, but it's kind of intriguing. Normal response. And when people believe and come to faith, normal response. Our goal in evangelism is not everybody always believes all the time. Our goal is like, we should probably see these same three things. Like that's, that's what happens when the gospel goes forward. So I want you to know that so that you can be encouraged. You're like, you know what? There's people in your world and in your circle of relationships that are going to have these various responses. And that's good. Same thing happens in Acts. Acts 17 shows us why we do evangelism, how we do evangelism, and then what happens when we do evangelism. What I want you to see is simply that a biblical church is an evangelistic church. This is how the church got started in the first place, and this is what biblical churches do. They just continue proclaiming this message and orienting their lives together around this message. Christians are a people shaped by the gospel with good news to proclaim, and we proclaim it to human beings made in the image of God who make their own decisions. 
and who we're responsible just to like love them enough to talk to them. And then we honor their humanity enough to say, you know what? You got to do with this what you're going to do with it. A biblical church is an evangelistic church. And I hope you see in this the why. Because we ought to want Jesus to get more worship than he's getting. The how of how we go about doing this and what we should expect to see. What happens in people as this message, this good news goes forth. And the whole point here is Jesus is doing this work through his church. Like, why is Paul there preaching this message? Because the Holy Spirit has sent forward the apostles to go plant churches and preach the gospel. Fast forward a couple thousand years, and here we are. Still doing the same thing. God at work in the world in the same ways through his church. So let me make some specific applications, first to you as an individual, and then to us as a church family, okay? Three questions I want to ask each of you. First of all, have you joined the people of God and believed? Have you joined the people of God and believed? Notice that language at the end of the passage, but some joined him and believed. Has that happened for you? Have you joined God's people through believing in Jesus? If not, maybe this is the day where like Dionysius, like Damaris, this is your moment where you're like, yeah, you know what? This is true, and I'm in. Like, why would this not be the day? And if, if you're the person who's like, well, actually, I'd, I'd like to hear more about this. Great, let's keep the conversation going. So first of all, have you joined the people of God and believe? Let's first answer the question, what's the gospel's progress and work in your own heart? Then second question for you, is your spirit provoked by the idolatry around you? If not, Maybe that's an invitation for a place where the Holy Spirit might just want to soften you a little bit. Like you hang out with people and just go, man, I love these people, but they're just, they're living for stuff that just doesn't seem like it's satisfying. I wish they knew Jesus. I'm provoked to pray more for them. I'm provoked to just like long that they would know Christ. Your spirit provoked by the idolatry around you? Does it bug you that the guy down the street spends all his money on hunting or builds his calendar around youth sports? Like, do those things bother you or are they just sort of like facts? And then third, are you attuned to the common grace truth in your world? Who are the poets? Who are the songwriters? Who are the, the thinkers who are saying true things? Are you aware of some of those realities in your world? And look, sometimes people hear that and they're like, I guess we have to all like listen to the same music and get into the same movies and stuff. No, whatever thing you're into, there's common grace realities in that sector of the world. So like if you're an attorney, there's common grace realities in the world of law. And if you're a teacher, there's common grace realities in the world of education. And man, if you're into film, there's common grace realities you can tap into through film and through art and through music. There's all kinds of things in our world that provide grounding points for the grace of God. Are you attuned to those? If I could commend a book to you, it's out there on the resource table. There's a little book called The Air We Breathe. Uh, written by my friend Glenn Scrivener, who's a, a wonderfully intelligent British guy. And um, the title of the book gets at this reality, that if you live in the West, the air you breathe is saturated with Christianity, but you don't know it. And all he does in that book is he takes seven or eight or nine like things people take for granted 
And he just says, did you know the reason you take that for granted is because of Christianity? Like, I'll give you an example. I think it's chapter seven or eight is equality. He's like, hey, you live in America. Is there anything we take for granted more than the reality that like all people are created equal, everyone should have equality, we should all sort of get the same opportunities and, and no one should be like held down by systems that are unjust. You know where you got that idea? Not from the Romans, not from the Anglo-Saxons, not from the Vikings. You, were, you got it from Christianity. Like that's the only worldview in the world that believes everybody is equal in the eyes of God. And he just says, you take that for granted and even if you're uh, a God-denying, God-hating atheist, the reason you take that for granted is because you live in the air of Christianity. It's a really powerful book to help us be attuned to common grace. The place in our world where we can just say, hey, there's some things you think and take for granted that actually the only reason you take them for granted is because Jesus Christ got out of the grave and then his movement swept the world and changed the very world you live in. All right. Three points for us to think about together. First of all, as a church, as we think about proclaiming the gospel, we start from common grace, not from confrontation. So I want you to know that, that if you're a part of Columbia Church, the, the starting point for us is always common grace, not confrontation. We live in a very confrontive world that no matter what you think on any issue, the cool thing to do is like tell everybody they're dumb if they don't agree with you, okay? That's not what we do here. If you do that, there might be other churches that are a better fit for you. What we do here is we start from common grace. We start from shared humanity. Start from the fact that we're all of us a human being trying to make our way in the world, asking the same kinds of questions, dealing with the same kinds of suffering and hardship, and actually those common realities provide a starting point for talking about Jesus with people. We start from common grace, not confrontation. Second, we see evangelism as a process, not as an event. Okay? Um, in other words, as we think about those three responses, we're imagining a lot of people in our world today falling in that second category of saying, you know what, I'm not convinced, but I'm willing to hear more. And we see evangelism as a journey with people where it's going to take a long time for folks to generally sort of like reason their way through like, who is Jesus and what does he say about life and is it real and is it true and does it make sense? Someone asked me a few years ago, how come you guys don't do altar calls at Quorum Deo? And my first response was like, I don't know, is that in the Bible? Like, is that a should? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a should. I think that's something you inherited from a culture that thinks that's what you should do and that you're not doing evangelism unless you do that. Here's what we do instead of altar calls. A thing called baptism. Church has been doing it for a few thousand years. It's actually the main biblical way of identifying with God and his people. Like every Christian who has identified with Christ has done so in the waters of baptism. So generally what we do is we walk with people and when they're ready to profess faith in Jesus, you know what we want to do? Baptize them. That's that's what we're aiming at with people. And we're doing one of those next Sunday. It's going to be great to celebrate with a lot of people who have come to faith along the way some point in their journey and want to testify to that. Okay, so we see evangelism as a process. We're not out to like create a moment as much as we, we do think that moment needs to happen. Like there needs to come a day in your life when you surrender to Jesus Christ. Maybe that day is today. But until that moment comes for you, we're just going to keep walking on the journey and keep inviting you to faith in Jesus. 
We start from common grace, not confrontation. We see evangelism as a process, not an event. And finally, we want to make the issue Jesus and his resurrection. Okay? That's the thing we want to make the center. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If so, everything changes. If not, you're wasting your time here. So as a church, here's what I want you to remember as a human being, as a Christian, as a person living in the world around lots of people who don't share all the same beliefs you do. No one is going to agree with you about stuff that's downstream unless they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Like if the resurrection happened, there's a lot of other things that have to therefore be true, right? But if the resurrection didn't happen, then who cares what we disagree about? Because if you don't agree that Jesus rose from the dead, then I don't expect you to believe other stuff that Christians believe. Like the starting point is, did Jesus Christ get out of the grave? So that's just the thing we want to argue about with people and impress upon people and say, look, the question for the world is, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ happen? And if it did, then that means some glorious things for all of us. And if it didn't, then I will agree with you. We should be doing something else. So let's not waste our time. Okay. So let's make that the focal point. Let's make that the issue. Let's let that be the center in the heart of the gospel we believe and profess together. That's the thing in Acts 17 that gets people fired up. It's like, wait, a guy got out of the grave? I'm not sure about that. Same is true today, right? Let's be a people who center our lives and our proclamation on Jesus Christ and on the glorious good news that he got up out of the grave. And that means amazing things for you and me. Let's close our time in prayer together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead. And thank you that because you rose from the dead and sent your spirit, we read this story in the book of Acts. Thank you that, thank you that it's, it's the resurrection and therefore the ongoing work of your spirit in the world that brings us here today. We're just further downstream from this movement that began the moment you got up out of the grave. So would you help us delight in that good news? Would you help us be a people who are evangelistic in all the right ways, who love you, who love your gospel, who want to see human beings around us flourish and thrive, who want the best for them and know that the best for them is found in worshiping the God in whose image they are made? So God, even this morning, renew our hope in you, renew our joy in you, and renew our zeal to be the kind of church that's both challenging and convicting because we embrace this glorious good news together and we continue to proclaim it to your world. So Father, I pray for my friends who aren't yet Christians and for everyone represented in this room and all the circles of influence we have. God, let us be Jesus people. Let us be gospel people. Let us be the kind of church that has a meaningful impact in the world because we just love you and want people to know you. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.